listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Not many people have ever been entrusted with hundreds of millions of dollars and the promise of more to come if it is needed, with instructions to go and create a brand new broker from scratch. But today's guest has persuaded blue chip investors to do just that. These investors have also given him the multi-year time horizon he needs to achieve his goals. With a glittering career right at the top of global intermediaries, he could have stayed where he was and continued to do extremely well for himself. That's what most people would have done. But Steve McGill clearly isn't like you and me. In this podcast, we dissect his vision for a new type of intermediary. We check in on his progress just over a year into his business plan and look at the transformed broking landscape in the wake of the MMC, JLT and Aon Willis mega M&A deals. We also talk about building the right culture and get this broking veteran's take on the extraordinary situation we find ourselves in now with COVID-19, the hard global insurance market and the class of 2020. This episode's a little longer than usual, but I make no apologies for that. I would have had him on the line for much longer if he could have spared more time. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. How's Michelin Partners uh, progressing against its initial plan? Well, hi, uh, Mark, and it's great to uh, be with you and uh, comparing notes. But uh, in terms of how we progress against the original plan, all things considered, remarkably well. When you reflect on the fact that we really got the financing established with our partners, Warburg Pincus, on the 24th of May last year, and really for the last year, we've been working hard to build out the platform, build the infrastructure, uh, recruit talent, which has gone extraordinarily well, get our licensing arranged, which uh, we're currently operating as an authorized representative of Ambant, part of the Davies Group, and we've submitted our part for application. Uh, we did that very progressive renewal rights deal with Dan Glazer and Marsha McLennan in August of last year. We onboarded 70 colleagues in October, and we came into 2020 with incredible momentum, really looking forward to the future. And we actually had no idea, nor did anybody else, that we'd have to activate a crisis management plan that we did, obviously, in in March in light of COVID. And, you know, we had 200 colleagues working 
remotely and seamlessly and, and thank goodness for the investment we made in cloud-based technology and the ability for us to use the technology and use our talent and work uh, remotely. So when we sort of step back and say, you know, what is happening? How is the business looking? What are the prospects? Well, we now have hired 230 colleagues and we're continuing our recruitment drive whilst operating remotely. Uh, We represent over 150 clients and the momentum and growth in our business as we're going through this unprecedented time, I'm delighted to say is accelerating and we really feel positive about the future and positive about the opportunity. And I'm sure we'll talk about Aon and Willis and other things, but that's before we even factor those in. So really so you, encouraged. Would you say you're ahead of your plan, your original plan? I think you've got to rip up the original plan because so much has changed. But in terms of where we are, we're ahead of our original plan when you look at the overall totality of the plan. I'm really pleased with the progress we're making on building out our seven specialist teams. And I'm really pleased with the quality of the talent we've hired. And I'm incredibly pleased with the level of activity in the firm from clients coming to McGillan Partners from all over the world. So it's uh, it's exciting times and, and I'm really uh, thrilled to be a part of the industry again and to be leading a firm that is a boutique specialist firm led by practitioners at, at an extraordinary time in the marketplace. It's been very difficult to keep up. We've probably lost count of how many people you have hired now. Round about year end, how many people you might have and, and how much business might you be placing? Well, I think uh, of the 230 that we've hired, uh, a number of colleagues are in, in the garden. And so we will shortly be going through our 200th employee that will actually be physically, if you like, or remotely joining us. Uh, We're continuing very thoughtfully with our hiring strategy, and we've got a pipeline of really interesting talent that we're talking to. And in terms of business activity, our pipeline going into the end of the year is, is very strong. We talked in premium numbers at the start of the year, you know, where we were looking at premium volume of 250, 300 million dollars that we were handling pretty quickly. You know, that's based on everything I'm seeing. That's going to be more than double that when we head towards the end of the the year. And the pipeline for 2021 is already looking pretty strong. You mentioned about having to rip up your plans. Obviously, no sooner had you raised your capital than we had MMC JLT. And now we've got the deal of all deals, perhaps, um, with Aon and Willis announcing they want to get together. I mean, how did that affect your thinking? And what, what were the first sort of obvious opportunities do you think that threw up for you? Well, the obvious comment I would make there, there's there's a couple of comments I'd make, is it, it just entirely validated the journey we were on, which was to build a firm that was highly specialized and we have as you know seven specialties within the firm ranging from complex property and casualty business marine and cargo aviation and aerospace energy and power through to reinsurance both treaty and and facultative reinsurance and our perspective on on this is that clients want choice carriers want alternative distribution and also, frankly, the A. M. Willis combination, which 
is going to be an extraordinary transaction when it's eventually done. And, and both Aon and Willis are incredibly impressive firms, as you know. But it actually opens up options for talent as well. And I, I think it's going to continue to accelerate and amplify our progress around talent. And whilst this is the largest acquisition of a company in the history of insurance broking, and it obviously follows Marsha McLennan's acquisition of Jardine Lloyd Thompson, which was first announced in 18th of September 2018. You know, whilst that is the case, it really just reaffirms our strategy around very active and ambitious acquisition of talent in the industry. Seeing such a big opportunity suddenly present itself, you've got your, you've mentioned your seven specialisms. Did it tempt you to become perhaps to say, why don't we become a bit more generalist and try and do a bit of everything if we've got this opportunity across the board? Quite the reverse, actually, Mark. It just reaffirmed the importance of having a specialist strategy, not a generalist strategy. And, you know, I think one of the really impressive features about Aon and Marsha McLennan and, of course, Willis, is the breadth of capabilities that they have as organizations when they're thinking about serving clients. And I think trying to compete against that breadth of capability by just being a smaller version of a firm like that, you know, it's it's an interesting strategy, but it's one that we certainly didn't want to pursue because we felt actually going narrow and deep in terms of expertise and capability around specialties was much more compelling. And frankly, that was borne out by, I'd highlight two other features there. One was we did extensive client interviews and carrier interviews as we were looking to build McGillan Partners. And so we designed our proposition around the needs of clients and we were respectful and mindful of what the carrier partners were looking for. And that was a, you know, a very key component of our thinking. And and the other element was we looked across financial services and looked at trends that had happened in the investment banking world over like a a 20-year period. And it's really interesting that uh, over that period of time, you had almost the equivalent of an Aon and and a Marsh being the likes of JP Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, incredible organizations with a breadth of resources and capabilities. And then along came the emergence of very high quality boutique specialty firms like Evercourse of the world, like Molas's of the world. And they went narrow and deep in terms of capability and they pursued an acquisition strategy around talent. And they built very successful businesses. And today, if you look at the market share in the investment banking world of boutiques, it's 36% of the entire business. So I hope that we actually can be a catalyst for change in the broking industry and also a really interesting alternative and complementary choice for clients and an alternative and complementary access point for uh, the all-important carriers in the marketplace. Right, Steve, you're doing direct specialty, wholesale and reinsurance. What sort of split is that of your business between those three at the moment? And how's that likely to change now that you're picking up these new opportunities? Great question. Well, what I would say to that is, is obviously we're still in build out mode. And so as we're building out, the mix is going to continue to, to evolve. But right now, when you look at the 
total premium volumes and revenues that we represent, that represents our business, about 36% of our business is corporate clients. And then it's broadly, at the moment, quite well balanced between wholesale business, MGAs, and reinsurance, with the reinsurance being more facultative than treaty at this stage. But as I say, I think um, if you ask me that question in a, in a year's time, I think you'll see the mix of business still continuing to evolve and change. But what I would say is it's an incredibly diversified portfolio of business, uh, not just in terms of whether it's wholesale reinsurance or direct corporate clients, but it's quite diverse in terms of geography. We've got business coming in from, I'm delighted to say, from all over the world. In a recent interview, you said that people still underestimate the importance of relationships in broking. Do you think, and obviously big brokers try and do the opposite. They try and institutionalize business and make it a Marsh account, an Aon account, a Willis account, and so that it's not it's less important, that you know, it's not portable via the, the brokers that place it. Do you think that large brokers ever can truly institutionalize business, or do you think it'll always be available to a broker like yourself? I think the clients really, when it comes right down to it, and especially in the area we're in, which is specialist business, and mainly for larger, more complex uh, clients, it really does, when you're thinking about focusing on the transaction, the placement, the design and structuring of an insurance and reinsurance program, to a large extent, it actually comes down to the quality of the talent that's in the firm. And, you know, I've been very public in, in saying that the assets of the firm are the people in it. And certainly from the very early start of McGillan Partners, and we're still at the, you could argue, we're, we're still only months in from really beginning to fully operate. The visibility that we have with clients, the opportunities we have with clients and very major clients is pretty significant. And it's quite clear to us that clients are actually going to where the expertise resides. And that's particularly true in this market environment. Now, I don't also, I'm highly respectful of the Aeons and Marshes. They have networks of offices. They have deep resources that they can reach into. But in terms of where we're looking to compete, which is around the structuring and placing of the most effective risk transfer deals in the market, clients are looking to us as a very viable alternative, and that is down to the people. And the other dynamic on the, on the people is you then need to make sure that, uh, that you have a culture that actually attracts the right colleagues to the firm who are prepared to work as part of a team. And so you still have an institutionalized business in a funny way, but it's based on the quality of the talent and the culture of the firm and the focus that we have on serving clients with world-class needs. And uh, I couldn't be more proud of the colleagues in the, in the firm, and I couldn't be more proud of how we're actually serving clients at this incredibly difficult time. Relationships and talent are really key. And how do you stop yourself becoming a hostage to that talent threatening to leave and go and work somewhere else? Well, uh, again, the assets of the firm are the people in the firm. And I firmly believe, especially in this industry, great firms focus on attracting and retaining talent. And our people are our absolute priority. 
And, you know, that's why we have, for example, a colleague value proposition that is unlike anything else in, in the industry. And it's a contract of trust between us and our colleagues. As you know, it was quite extraordinary that uh, we put this contract of trust in place before we even knew COVID was around the corner. But it was basically saying if colleagues want to work remotely, they're free to do it. There are no defined working hours. There are no defined holidays. And we had very progressive arrangements when it came to things like maternity and paternity leave. And so, you know, it's important to have a colleague value proposition that is compelling. But beyond that, it's also important to have values and culture in a firm that actually attract people and retain people. And, you know, we're never going to be complacent about this. We're proud to be a destination for talent. You know, the extraordinary thing about the recruitment that we've done, which has been extensive, is that uh, our hit rate with colleagues that we've approached has been over 90% in the industry. And, And I think that's because the model, the approach, practitioner-led business, high degree of focus, high degree of specialization, and an environment where we're saying all the colleagues are shareholders in the firm, and we have a team-based culture, and we don't want to actually have people who could contaminate that culture joining the firm. I think this has been a magnet for talent. And as I say, we've got to keep working at it. But I believe that uh, as we drive our growth going forward, we're going to continue to uh, grow our talent very successfully out into the future. So if I'm right in saying that, so you're looking for the right sort of talent, the sort of talent, not the sort of talent that is unlikely to threaten to walk out the door, the sort of talent that sort of feels it owns an account and and sort of is more like a a mercenary, perhaps. So you're looking for people who want to build a business with you, who are talented, but at the same time want to work in a team. Is is that right? Sort of that you really don't want the sort of people who, who are sort of in one year and bring you lots of income, but then will threaten to walk out tomorrow and they'll end up owning all the economics of that account anyway. Not not only do we not want them, but we've not even wanted to interview them and they don't fit our culture. You know, we one of the exciting things about the senior leadership of this firm, including my colleague John Lloyd and Stephen Cross, who's in the firm and Carl Hennessy is, you know, one of the driving forces of, of doing what we're doing is actually building a firm that is progressive, that is forward looking. And it's a firm that's built for the next generation of of leaders. And we absolutely believe it is essential that you work with like-minded colleagues who genuinely think about what is in the best interests of the company and the firm and not colleagues where it's all about the individual, where they start talking about it's my account or my business or I am doing this or I'm doing that. It's teamwork it's us it's we we're in this together and i've said to our team on regular webinars that we're doing once every two weeks i'm doing it and and teams are doing it every week within the business the specialty teams but i've said you know we are a team we've gone into this together we're coming out of it together and we're going to come out of it stronger we're going to have challenges along the way but this is all about how we build a business for the future And you do that through making sure you hire the right people and those people really want to be genuinely part of a team-based culture. 
Steve, talking about culture, I mean, do you think the McGillan partners culture could ever countenance something like across the, the board pay cuts that we've seen? Well, I actually don't see, I found that the decision you're obviously referring to, you know, the recent decision of Bayon to adopt pay cuts for their for their staff. And, you know, I have to say, from our standpoint, we're a growth company. We're on the recruitment drive. We want to absolutely motivate our staff and our colleagues. And cutting pay at this stage is not the way we would uh, even remotely think about going about motivating our colleagues to, to serve our clients. And as far as I'm concerned, and in fairness, I do believe the position that Aon have taken is around, it's a, it's a temporary decision. I believe they've made that public. And, and I know how colleagues at Aon operate. I've worked there for 12 years. I know the leadership and I know that must have been an incredibly difficult decision. But as far as, you know, Aon were concerned, they said that was the decision they made to enable them to serve clients. The decisions we make to enable McGillan partners to serve clients is continuing to motivate our, our staff, continuing to, to recruit talent and actually looking to not just the short term of this really unfortunate, unprecedented crisis, but look to the long term. And quite frankly, we're really fortunate that we're a private company, that we've got no debt, that we have substantial capital backing from a wonderful partner in Warburg, Pincus, and we're growing rapidly. So, so our focus is very much on how we actually look to build our business over the long term. And our emphasis is, is on that. And we remain excited, as I've said, about the opportunities ahead of us. Well, Steve, within your growth story, you've chosen to build a greenfield broker from scratch. Are there any circumstances under which you might consider M&A of some kind? Well, you say we might consider M&A but I would I would say we're pursuing one of the most ambitious M&A strategies ever undertaken in the insurance broking world. It just happens to be it's M&A, when we think about that, is acquisition of talent, not companies. And, you know, I would say that you can't say never. There's change all around us. There's change within this industry. We've got the biggest uh, acquisition in broking history on the horizon uh, with Aon and Willis coming together. But, you know, where we sit right now, and by the way, we've actually had requests and we've had contacts, investment bankers and other organizations reaching out saying, would we look to acquire this company and that company? And some of them are very good firms, but we've, we've always felt Building a business, starting with a blank sheet of paper and actually building it around talent, around no legacy systems and building a culture from the talent that we recruit is a really interesting opportunity and it's very counterintuitive. But the early signs of what we're doing, I'd say, are incredibly positive. And so our position is we are acquiring we're acquiring aggressively, but it happens to be around talent, not companies. 
you've got a greenfield broker you mentioned at the beginning about having you know be able to work in the cloud so you've got no legacy how much of an operating cost advantage does that give you over incumbent uh, legacy brokers well to be honest it's pretty hard to cost this out but there's clearly a, a material cost advantage if you don't have legacy systems unreconciled accounting items that often is measured in hundreds of thousands of items and you've got to employ lots of people to reconcile these items and and you've got sort of runoff in areas like claims for example often which when the brokers were representing those clients they weren't actually providing for revenue to cover the runoff of, of those claims so the cost advantage of actually not having any legacy systems is I would think pretty substantial. Couldn't tell you what it is in dollars or cents, but I do think there's a couple other elements that I'd highlight. There's the competitive advantage of building something from scratch and actually taking what works from the prior experience of all the colleagues that are joining the firm. And we've got, as I've said, we've got over well, 230 hired, a number still in the in the garden. But this is from 20 different, 26 different firms, many colleagues who've been longstanding and experienced practitioners in the industry, and actually taking the experiences of what they were doing and saying, well, what has actually worked in your prior lives and what can we amplify? What hasn't worked and what do we actually try and eliminate so that we make things more efficient and you know the number of times colleagues have been interviewing with us and they've expressed their frustrations around working in silos around P&Ls that actually drive the wrong behavior or incentives for individuals that drive the wrong behavior politics masses of it in organizations internal meetings many of which they think why are we sitting in these meetings committees, subcommittees, all of this stuff, you know, there are many practitioners who'd love to spend 80, 90% of their time working with clients. Many of them were spending sort of 30 or 40% of their time with clients because they were bogged down with a lot of internal stuff. Now, there's some things that are incredibly important that you've got to be right on top of, you know, compliance is critically important. It's a highly regulated industry. We want to make sure our colleagues operate in a very, very effective way. But there's lots of learnings that can give us a competitive advantage as a, as a business from colleagues that have joined the firm. And we're still learning. We're still evolving our approach. And uh, as well as that, there is you build a culture from the combination of 26 different firms. And you say, what is the best thing we can be doing going forward when it comes to culture? You combine culture competitive advantage with the cost advantages of no legacy systems. Now you've got something that is a differential that is really substantial and really powerful. I remember when at launch, you mentioned about being able to return some of the surplus economics of the value chain to, to the direct customer. Now that you're fully operating, on average, how much of that surplus economics have you been able to offer back to customers? Well, the amazing thing is we've been building out our proposition our client value proposition. And at the same time, we've been doing, you know, wholesale business, reinsurance business, MGA business. We're actually just beginning 
to put our corporate client value proposition in, in front of clients and, and go through this and articulate it. So it's very early days. But what I would, would say to you is talking to clients about what we are doing in terms of capturing value through the entire value chain in an open, transparent and unconflicted way and sharing it with clients is a really, it's a proposition that really excites them. Frankly, it was a proposition that came out of the client interviews we did before we built the business. So we knew it would it would be very receptive to them. But I, I think when you, if you just look at some of the numbers, when you, when you turn to London and you say, and John Neal in discussing the Lloyd's Blueprint has been very vocal on this, 40% of the premium goes in costs that's both underwriting expenses, but also distribution costs. And you look at that and you look at the complexity of the value chain and you say, well, how much of that cost is what you would consider surplus economics? And we put it as a range between 5 to 20%. Depends on the complexity of the account, depends on the line of business. So it's quite a material number. And, and the important thing is to work out how that cost is shared between the carriers who are at the end of the day underwriting the, the risks, the brokers who are providing the intermediate services and the clients. You spoke about your backers, Wolfberg Pincus. Building a broker takes a long time. How patient is your capital? Obviously, they're not a pension fund, so they're not, it's not quite permanent capital. How long have you got before you need to show returns on their investment they've made in you? Well, I'd, I'd say that there's a couple of things I would say to that. Wolfberg Pincus, we believe, are one of the finest financial sponsors in the world. I believe that before we partnered up with them, and I feel that even more strongly now, especially as we're going through COVID-19. They're the oldest private equity firm in the world. They actually started more as a venture capital firm. So, so they've got a real appreciation of starting businesses. Interestingly, you know, they were the founding lead investor in Ren Re, one of the most successful property cat underwriters in history. And so they were our number one choice as financial sponsor and, and it was fantastic that they partnered up with us. In terms of time horizon, they also recognize that when you're starting up a business, you know, the time horizon is not measured in three to five years. It's more measured in five to ten and more like sort of seven to ten years. I actually believe their investment in Renri, they came out of their investment in Renri after nine years. So they are genuinely long-term in their approach. What I would say in terms of the capital that we have available to deploy based on our current progress, we don't expect we're going to need to deploy anywhere near the amount of capital we have available. And secondly, we're making really good progress as a firm financially, even through this crisis. And I believe that, uh, that the returns that we're going to get are going to be sooner than we budgeted. Let's put it that way. I don't want to go into details, but we're very pleased with the progress we're making, both in terms of talent recruitment. We're pleased with the progress we're making in terms of delivering against our plans. And we're very pleased with having partnered up with uh, Warburg Pincus 
and working together with them to capture the opportunities as we look out to the future. Well, you mentioned Renri there. Um, that was, I suppose, I think, I'd have to correct me if I'm wrong, but it probably, as far as I can remember, it's probably the last of the post-Hurricane Andrew class of 1993 that's still trading under its own name. We've now got a class of 2020 forming. What do you think are the class of 2020's chances of building a new long-term brand like, like Renri was able to do? Well, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how how the class of 2020 comes together, what their purpose is, what their vision is, whether they do what Remri did, which was, again, really interesting, specialised around expertise in particularly property cat reinsurance and surrounded themselves, which I keep coming back to, with really talented expertise you know whether it's on the broking side or the underwriting side it does come back to do you actually have around you the talent who are able to navigate through the challenges that uh, we're going to face beyond 2020 into 2021 and beyond and actually build a business and deliver the returns that investors would like and i would say that as you look out to the future just like with the class of insurers post-Hurricane Andrew, post-9-11, post the hurricanes of 2005, you know, there are winners and, and losers, and that will be the dynamic that we'll face going forward. I was just going to ask about whether the nature of the opportunity, let's say in 93 and 2005, it was really only a property cat opportunity that was by 1997, most of the class of 93 sort of had consolidated or fully diversified or sort of melted away. Same with 2005, but it was 2001 that had that real across the board hard market opportunity, both in property cat and, and but fully within casualty to build a really diversified and quite long standing businesses that came out of that time. I just wanted to ask you, what's your gut feeling about this opportunity of the, in the market for carriers today? Well, I, th- I think it is, I think the opportunity, unlike some of the previous opportunities, are more broad-based geographically, and they're more broad-based when it comes to the different lines of business. And, you know, when, when you step back and look at the fact that from an underwriting loss standpoint, very senior figures in the industry, whether it's Evan Greenberg of Chubb or John Neal of Lloyd's are talking about, you know, losses in the 100 billion plus range before you factor in investment losses. That is the biggest non-life loss in the history of insurance. And and it has impacted, you know, this loss and COVID-19, obviously, it's impacted the entire world. It's impacted every segment of business. And so I think when you narrow it down to our universe of insurance and reinsurance, underwriting and broking, and you say, well, what is the opportunity? Well, I think the opportunity is global. And I think the opportunity goes across many classes of insurance, whether it's property insurance, whether it's casualty, whether it's DNO, the capital constraints caused by COVID-19 in the industry could be really substantial. And so you know, what does the market look like going forward? It's very hard to tell. But I, I think if you can bring as a class of 2020 flexible capital that you can deploy to opportunities in either short tail or long tail classes of business, and you've got the right talent and the expertise to deploy it, you're in a really interesting position and it's an interesting business proposition. 
has the COVID-19 pandemic enhanced or worsened the insurance industry's global standing? How, how have we done, do you think? I think, if I'm honest, it's too early to tell. I just referenced $100 billion of, of claims that is going through the, the industry. Now, if, if $100 billion of claims, which is the biggest loss ever in the history of non-life insurance, gets paid efficiently, I would think there'd be a lot of clients out there who would actually be quite pleased with the way the industry has, has responded. When you actually then step down from there and you look at what is happening you know, around the world, you've had auto insurers in the US, for example, firms like Geico and Progressive, who were very quick to return premiums to clients when COVID-19 hit, you know, because obviously they weren't driving their vehicles around. And, and I think Admiral did the same in, in, in the UK. That's been very positively received. Then, on the other hand, you see small businesses who've had what they believe to be legitimate claims that they're claiming for pandemic insurance. And you've had a cross-section of underwriters who've said, actually, this isn't covered. And we know in the UK here, we're right in the middle of that dynamic right now. So I think this is going to, Mark, it's going to take time to play out. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to give a mark to the industry right now. But I, I hope the industry, when we come through this and we look back on everything that has happened, I hope the industry is going to be positively viewed, not just for what it's done in this situation, but actually for how it's beginning to think about sort of planning for the future around other events of this nature going forward. Well, Steve, other interesting things have been happening. There's a lot been happening in London, you know, lots of really progressive things happening. There was the key syndicate from Brit announcement the other week. And you mentioned about cutting costs in the London market. Do you think things like automatic follow underwriting, do you think they're the best way of cutting costs in the London market? I think it is one way of actually being more efficient. And, it, and it's an important uh, development, I, I would say. When you think about leadership and, and followership in, in London, you know, it's like you talk to underwriters, Lloyd's underwriters, and virtually all of them say they're leaders in something. And, and I can't believe that is absolutely accurate when you actually, if you actually get down and analyze every single syndicate what they're doing and how they're, they're doing it, do they really have the technical expertise to lead? And I think the, the ambition that John Neal has to separate true leadership from followership is to be applauded, frankly. As you know, when I was at, at Aon with the team, you know, we developed um, controversially in 2013 the Berkshire Hathaway sidecar, which was providing automatic follow capacity to support the marketplace. And then there was obviously the Aon client treaty, which was very successfully done. And other brokers have done other facilities where they're trying to harness capacity. But if you really want to get to the nub of it, and you can actually have a defined panel of leaders, and you can have a defined panel of followers, that can help drive down cost. And certainly, I think what uh, Brit have done with the key syndicate, and we've had a presentation on that, is frankly pretty groundbreaking and, and I believe should be applauded. But the one thing I'd also say is it's not just about 
that element of cost. You know, I said earlier, uh, you know, there's 40% cost in, in London, 27% is distribution cost. The overall cost is too high, the distribution cost is too high. And so it's how do we thoughtfully go about addressing the total cost because it's unsustainable over over time. And, you know, I think technology's going to play a part. Structural change like the lead follow will play a, a part. Other ways of efficiently harnessing capacity will play a part and also addressing the traditional wholesale model. I think wholesalers in London that serve clients well, that get extra commission and add value to that process, I think should be absolutely fine and their value proposition is fine. But those wholesalers who sit back in London and clip the ticket and don't actually add much value in the in the process, I think uh, are going to be, and quite rightly, going to be challenged in a future environment as Lloyd's continues to evolve. Out of the blueprint, there's um, lots of interesting new ideas. This is the blueprint at Lloyd's for different ways of bringing capital in. Um, do you think in this hard market, do you think it's going to be the making of some of those new sources of capital, things like uh, insurance derivatives and that sort of thing? I think it's still an evolving picture, Mark. So I'd, I'd say it's too early to tell. What I what I would say, though, is as I look at the market, I think there's there's a lot of demand for actually back to basics underwriting, doing good quality underwriting with insurance and, and reinsurance capital. And I think I'm certainly seeing a lot of um, activity around and we've seen some of it publicly, but we're, we're working behind the scenes on a number of interesting propositions, which is, you know, how do we bring additional capital to world-class insurers to enable them to not only write more business on their own balance sheet, but actually write business on behalf of, of other capital. And I think that whole trend is going to continue to, to, to evolve over, over time. And it's going to be interesting to see what the landscape looks like in 2021 around sources of capital that are, that are coming into the industry. Well, Steve, I'm really conscious that I've taken up a very large amount of your very valuable time. So just unless there's anything else we need to discuss, I, I'd really like to thank you so much for coming on the show. Come back anytime and good luck with uh, developing the plan. Thanks. Really appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, continuing our discussions at, a, at another point in time. Well, thanks very much, Steve. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, don't forget to like The Voice of Insurance and subscribe to it wherever you downloaded it from. I also want to thank Prime Insurance and Claims Direct Access for their support today. It's massively appreciated. Go to www.primeis.com to check them out. There are full links in the podcast notes. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Dot com.